Surely, surely your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Thank you, Jesus. I appreciate the worship team. I appreciate the, the variety of people that bring their talents. And uh, this time we're, we're lifting up Jesus. You know, this is about the Lord, so I don't, I don't want to make it a big deal about, about humans. But I do know that they put in preparation and they go to battle. Uh, and, you know, they pay a price to, to, to sing and to declare what they sing. I believe that. You know, they, uh, they don't just, you know, live like a sheltered, isolated life. Um, you know, every single one of them, they're, they're walking through things and they're fighting to stay faithful and to stand up there and to declaim the glories of the Lord. And so I appreciate that and I, I honor that. Um, and uh, and I also just again give glory to God for for who they are and for bring us together. It's good to be here today. I'll, I'll echo Sean's prayer. You know the the cold, the impending cold. I knew it was coming all week. It kind of weighed heavily on me, and uh, it has warmed my heart to be here with you guys today. So I'm I'm happy to be here, and uh, and to bring God's word to you. We're in John chapter 13. If you have your Bible. We've been going through the Gospel of John, and it has uh, it has taken a while. Uh, Ava pointed that out to me this week. She's like, "Man, it feels like we've been in we've been in John a while." I was like, "Well, we're in some ways we're halfway through, you know, but we're a little bit more than halfway." But it's been we've come to a turning point from the public ministry of Jesus to uh, him moving towards the cross, drawing nearer to his disciples, and there's more uh, small group private teaching, private instruction, private conversation that we're reading and studying in the scriptures today, and we're getting to see more intimate moments, and it, it has turned, he's marching toward the cross. Chronologically, the time that is covered in the first part of John is a longer period of time, and now we're zeroing in uh, to the last weeks and days of his life as he, he moves towards the cross. And we heard last week about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. In John chapter 13, and uh, I wanted to go back and pick up at verse 17. And so uh, Jesus says something. He makes a promise, and when he does that, I always like to look at that and take it to heart and pay careful attention. And he ends verse 17 by saying, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do these things. And so I want to look at that. I want to live a blessed life. I want to be blessed. Uh, I want to be blessed by the Lord. I want to be blessed in God's eyes, in God's wisdom. You know, there's a, a blessing. The world sees things, blessings in a different way. I was, uh, this was brought home to me recently, and uh, I was kind of struggling and, you know, just as you do, uh, reflecting, reminiscing, and um, I, had, uh, I had something jog my memory, and I was thinking of an old friend that I haven't talked to in a long time, and I, I was trying to look him up and reach out and just send a little message, and and uh, you know I was looking at this friend, and and uh, it seems like he's doing well. He his dad was a pastor. He he uh, was here, moved away during my eighth grade year, and so he was like my best friend, and I haven't really had com uh, communication, conversation, and uh, 
you know, I look up and he's like a regional president of this bank. He has, you know, this big title. He's, you know, blessed by all means. I, he was a believer last time I talked to him. I imagine that he still is. So I believe he has true blessing and he has worldly blessing. And then I was looking up some other friends and all of my friends, uh, you know, are the people that were my friends in high school are, you know, very successful. They have very impressive titles uh, before their name or after their name or impressive resumes. And I was feeling a little bit down, you know, like uh, it seems like they're living very blessed lives. I don't want to downplay what I have, but you can compare yourself in some way to what appears to be worldly blessings, and we can miss the true blessings of God. Um, and so I want to be blessed, but I don't want to be blessed just as the world is blessed. I want to walk in true blessing, which I believe I give thanks to God that, you know, I have struggles and, and difficulties, but uh, God has been good to me. So I want to be blessed. I want to be blessed in the way that God says is blessed, not in the way that the world says is blessed. But blessed are you if you do them. What he's talking about is having a servant heart. He had washed the feet of his disciples. He said, uh, the greatest of you will be the servant of all. The one who would be the, the highest, the greatest, the best, the leader must serve must humble himself, and there's blessing in taking that stance. There's blessing, true spiritual blessing, true actual real blessing that lasts when we take that approach to life that the Lord Jesus had, and I want to walk that out. Looking at verse 18, he said, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel Against me, Jesus is quoting scripture, and, and I was looking at 17, 18, 19. These are verses kind of that are before the part that I'm teaching today, but I wanted to point out a few things. Uh, scripture will be fulfilled. I want to encourage you. Scripture will be fulfilled. Scripture must be fulfilled. And so Jesus is quoting scripture. He's quoting from the Psalms, and he's letting us know that something terrible is coming, but it's in God's plan, and it works for God's glory, and for our good. That's something I repeat often. All things, God works all things together for our good and for his glory. And something terrible is about to happen. And yet, God's not unaware of it. He hasn't taken it into account. He is prepared, and he's working it for our good and for his glory. And you can look at the world today. You can look at some things that are happening. You can look at uh, the news, and you can feel maybe despair, you can feel uh, despondency, you can feel a heaviness. The scripture will be fulfilled. All things are working for our good and for his glory. In verse 19, he says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. And I want to say also, scripture is sufficient. And what I mean by that is we can look at the words of Jesus. God has given us his word to prepare us for what's to come. And there are, there's been movements in Christianity and, uh, and in the world today that, uh, you know, read the signs of the times. And there are people that can make some wild speculations and conspiracies and ideas about what's going on in the world and what people are doing and the evil that's happening, and uh, Scripture's sufficient. 
You know, you can, you can look at what's going on, you can read the news, you can be aware, um, but Scripture is sufficient to warn us, to prepare us, uh, to make us ready, that we don't have to go down these, we have to be cautious to go down these crazy rabbit holes of, you know, conspiracy and, and suspicion and speculation and, and uh, does that make sense? Uh, if it doesn't make sense to you, then just look at the Bible and don't worry about it, but, uh, you know, People say some wild stuff to me, and I'm, you know, I'm a little bit distrustful of people in power. You know, I know that there's an enemy that prowls like a lion, and there's principalities and powers at work that are working anti-Christ or against Christ. Uh, but Scripture's sufficient. We don't have to go wild with a bunch of theories and be fearful and, and live uh, like chicken little Christians. All right? That's my... And we don't have to be angry, you know, we can have joy and we can have peace. And we'll see, actually, we're going to look in our passage, what defines us as Christians, what ought to define us as believers and followers of Jesus to the world is the love that we have for one another. So we're getting to some good stuff. I was thinking about this passage of Scripture, and I, I start at uh, verse 21, and I kind of see it as, uh, in my mind, it was like a little bit of a sandwich. You know, we have a betrayal and we have denial, uh, and in, sandwiched in between them, we have this beautiful command of Jesus, this new command that he gives. And so we're going to examine these things today, and uh, I hope we take heart and we're motivated to live the life that Jesus called us to live from these things. So in verse 21, it says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he'd taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So we see... This betrayal of Jesus. Uh, and it begins in verse 21. It says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Jesus was not unmoved by this. He was, even though he was aware of what was happening, he was aware of the consequences, he was aware of the plan. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was aware and he was troubled in his spirit. He was bothered. This betrayal didn't, it, it didn't not affect him. It didn't deter him, but it had an impact on him. Jesus truly loved, and he felt deeply, and he cared deeply, and he was troubled by this betrayal. Uh, one of the things that, there's several things I want to point out here, but Jesus said, the one I offer the morsel to, the, the, the bread that he had dipped, um, which was a sign of friendship, a sign of honor, a sign of, of fellowship. Jesus, even at that very last moment, 
was reaching out, I believe, to Judas. He was giving him opportunity. He was giving him opportunity to repent. Jesus uh, gave him a warning, I think, in verse 20. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. He's saying, if you receive me, you receive the Father. You receive the one who sent me. I think in there was a warning to Judas, who Jesus knew about, that if you're rejecting me, you're rejecting the Father. In so saying, calling out the betrayal, and, and then also offering the morsel, I think Jesus was communicating to Judas, I know what's going on. I know what's happening. In fact, if you read the Matthew version, Matthew in 26 gives a little bit more uh, of the conversation in the room. Several of the disciples, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they said, is it I? They were saying to themselves, is it I? Judas asked him, is it I? And Jesus said, you have said it. So Judas knew that Jesus knew, and yet Jesus offered him friendship. He offered him fellowship. He gave him an opportunity for repentance. Tragically, I've been in situations where I've seen, I've seen God do this. Where people are contemplating sin, they're contemplating um, following or rejecting Jesus, and I see God mercifully give them opportunity after opportunity, chance after chance, come to a crossroads or a turning point, and I've seen them turn their back on Jesus. And the results that follow are, are tragic. But Jesus is faithful. He's long-suffering. And he gives us opportunity to accept him. I think in Jesus offering that morsel, offering that friendship, extending that fellowship, that opportunity to Judas, I think he's embodying, he's consistent with his own teaching. I see him embodying the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I looked at the version in Luke where he shared, uh, he was sharing, and I see him doing exactly what he taught us to do. He said, uh, this is in Luke chapter 6, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. To love your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. See the consistency in Jesus' teaching and his actions. Even to this last moment, he gives opportunity to Judas. You know, of all the offense that Jesus suffered of all the attacks and the assaults that he experiences 
uh, physically as he goes to the cross, the abuse that he takes. Um, I think what we're seeing here and what he's dealing with here are maybe some of the most grievous wounds that he takes. The betrayal of one who's shared his bread, who's been with him, who's walked with him, who's seen him uh, in his intimate moments, who he's reached out the hand of fellowship to. And he's rejected, not only rejected, but betrayed to his death. We see the denial, we'll come to the denial of Peter. We see this is part of the pain that Jesus has suffered. And, um, some of you have experienced betrayal. I think it's one of the most difficult things for humans to get past and to overcome when they are uh, heartlessly wounded by those they loved and considered close friends. Jesus is, is not unacquainted with suffering. He knows he's been through it. And he's able to share. He shared in that, that suffering and that weakness. He's overcome. And so he's able to help us to overcome. But he expects us to walk as he walked. To bless those who curse us. To love our enemies. To do good to those who seek to harm us. Something that stands out to me about Judas uh, and his betrayal is, uh, you know, as somebody who does ministry, I've, I've been in and out of ministry as a, you know, an occupation or a, a job title. Um, you know, there's all kinds of uh, different ministries emphasize different aspects of serving. You know, some uh, emphasize preaching the gospel, that you ought to always be preaching the gospel. Uh, doing evangelism, reaching the lost. Some emphasize that you ought to always be uh, teaching, vigorously uh, teaching the Bible, expositing scripture, going through and, and making sure that the whole counsel of God is taught, that people have a, a deep and intimate knowledge of scripture. Some uh, ministries emphasize relationships, that you have to build relationships and invite people into your life and into your home so that they can see what being a Christian is about. Some emphasize discipleship, uh, walking with people, giving them experiences of doing ministry, um, giving them experiences alongside you serving. And some emphasize the presence of God, you know, leading people to God's presence, whether that's through worship or that's through, um, you know, intimate prayer time, seeing the Holy Spirit at work. Some of them emphasize power, you know, working to see uh Demonstrations of the Holy Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, miracles and signs and wonders. And what I see here is that Judas had the best of all of that. He was exposed to the best of all of that in Christ Jesus. And yet, he rejected it. Sometimes we can take failures on ourselves. And sure, we should examine our methods. We should examine our character. We should examine our approach to... Uh, sharing the gospel with people, witnessing to them. But the truth is that we can't force a human heart to accept Jesus. And people will reject Jesus even when they've had the best of the best. And so all we have to focus on is being faithful, being true. We can examine our motives and methods. We can go to the scriptures. 
We can seek the Lord. We can learn uh, new strategies and implement them. We want to be cautious, but we're being faithful to Scripture. But the truth is that we can't change people's hearts. We can look at the path that Judas took, and uh, in this one chapter, we can see a progression. Uh, Verse 2 of chapter 13, John tells us that, uh, in verse 2 it says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. We see Satan had put the idea into Judas's heart. And then we come to verse 27. And when Judas received the morsel, after he'd taken it, I think that was the final final effort, the final reach that Jesus made, offering that morsel. He took the morsel, and he wasn't changed in his heart. He wasn't brought to repentance. In fact, he was hardened. His heart was hardened beyond repair, or finally, at least. Uh, who knows what would happen if he didn't? If there was a chance for repentance, he died shortly after this, not to get ahead of ourselves. It says that Satan entered into him. Satan had entered a thought into him. Satan had put an idea into his heart. And as he continued to harden his heart against Jesus and to nurse the temptation of the devil, he opened the door. He closed the door to Jesus and opened the door to Satan. You know, James talks us about temptation and how we're led away by our own evil desires and its seed is planted and if we allow it to grow it it bears fruit root take that that is how sin is born that's how people are led astray scripture tells us no temptation has seized us except what is common to man and god is faithful to give us a way to stand up under it and so if you're facing temptation if you know that satan is trying to draw you to lead you to sin or to reject Jesus, to disobey God. You do battle there. You wage war. I think all Jesus had, or Judas had to do, he had access to Jesus. He could have confessed, been prayed for, been ministered to. He could have been delivered. And yet he nursed those thoughts. He nurtured them. He allowed them. He gave them home in his life until... It led to his betrayal. He went out. He, he went out immediately, uh, and uh, John notes, and it was night. I think that's, you know, maybe that's a chronological note, but it was a dark moment in the life of Jesus. Come to verse 31. And uh, when I was reading the scriptures, this was this was sandwiched in there, uh, and I was really excited about the verse, you know, when Jesus gives us a new command, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. It says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, 
and God is glorified in If God is glorified in him, God would also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And I've I've skipped over this, you know, like the word glorifies there, it's repeated a lot. Like uh, when I read through these parts, like I notice the betrayal, I notice notice the new command. But it's like, I don't know, it's almost like this is a, in my mind, this is a victorious declaration. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. You know, I think the devil thinks he's done something good here. He's got something accomplished, something achieved. And in that betrayal, it sets in motion. Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. You know, there were many times where uh, we could say that Jesus might have been glorified, that we could point to where he received glory. You know, he, uh, when he was baptized, a voice comes down from heaven. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And he was glorified there, but not in the way that he's about to be glorified. When he was performing miracles, feeding the 5,000, raising Lazarus from the dead, when he was transfigured on the mountain. Those things were glorifying to Jesus, but they weren't this, uh, this moment where he declares, now is the Son of Man glorified. Came across a, a commentator, and I wanted to read this quote. I wrote it down, so I'd read it in its entirety. Uh, guy Alexander McLaren. He said, if his death is glorifying, it must be because in that death, something is done which was not completed by the life, however fair that life was. It wasn't completed by the words, however wise and tender. It wasn't completed by the works of power, however restorative and healing. Jesus' death accomplished something that everything up to this moment hadn't been able to accomplish. And the moment that was intended to be his humiliation and his shame and his defeat ultimately were the greatest glory of Jesus. And in that, he glorified the Father. It's a great reversal. We see Jesus doing this, turning things on his head all the time. The first shall be last. The greatest shall be the servant of all. And in his humiliating death, he accomplishes the greatest glory, the greatest victory. It brought to mind Philippians chapter 2. And it's like we're supposed to walk like Jesus. We're supposed to have the mindset of Jesus. Philippians is after John. I know this stuff. <clears throat> Paul tells us that we are to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In verse 9, you hear that, I hear that triumphant declaration. It's like Judas leaves the room, and you think Jesus would maybe be discouraged. He was troubled in spirit. Now that it's set in motion, there's a, you know, sometimes you don't want to be the person that when 
you leave the room, everything gets better. You know what I mean? Like, but there's a breath of fresh air. There's, there's uh, glory. There's victory. There's triumph. And Jesus issues this declaration. And I wish, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'll change my mind a lot, but I wish I could have heard him say this. Philippians 2 verse 9, Jesus did those things. He humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. And verse 9 says, therefore, because of those reasons, because of him faithfully and obediently going to the cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus is glorified, the Father is glorified. Jesus glorifies the Father, the Father glorifies Jesus. They are one. I'm not getting into the the theology of the Trinity. But what's happening here is Jesus' moment of most humility, of most humiliation, uh, the lowest moment of his life is the greatest glory. I love that. It's beautiful. One of the songs that I love, I've, I've talked about it a couple times. Jarvis probably, maybe he could guess, you know, I don't know. Lower Still is by this band called My Epic. You, you can look it up. It's like kind of a, it's kind of hardcore, like Christian rock. And it, it, it goes through Jesus' life, his birth, you know, in the manger uh, to Mary and Joseph, humble, really peasants. And it's, it goes on and, and it, it repeats an episode of his life and it says, he has to go lower still. There's greater love to show. And you see throughout Jesus' life, him humbling himself and serving people and showing the love of God and humbling himself, not claiming it, not claiming what's rightfully his, but displaying it in humility. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every other name. This is the gospel. This is the Jesus that I'm calling to you to follow. To worship him. To lift him up. But to follow his example. Scripture promises promises us that if we humble ourselves, he will exalt us. But those who exalt themselves will be humbled. We can live out the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, whether you're reading Matthew or Luke. Uh, Jesus repeated his teachings throughout his life. We can love those who, who harm us, who persecute us. Jesus goes on to say, he's, he's giving them warning. He says, little children, in a little while I'm with you and you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment. I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. The washing of the feet, the morsel to the betrayer, the humbling himself to the cross. We are to love others at a cost to ourselves in humility as Jesus loved us. He says in verse 35, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples 
if you have love for one another. To be our defining characteristic, the defining characteristic of the followers of Jesus is how they love one another. And do they do it in the way that Jesus loves us? You know, there are times in church history when that has been the defining characteristic. I don't know, uh, you know, what the world thinks about the church, followers of Jesus this day. Um, but we're to be known by our love. One of my favorite songs from my childhood, I was raised, uh, I actually attended school here. This was a Catholic middle school. I, I attended sixth grade here. And I had basketball practices in this gym. And uh, I attended mass on a regular basis when I you know, went to Catholic school. And one of the songs that sticks in my head from my childhood uh, actually came out of the Jesus People movement of the 60s and 70s. If you saw the Jesus Revolution, any of you guys see that movie? Uh, Michael W. Smith did a, a, a version of it. We are one in the spirit. And it sings, we are one in the spirit, we are one in the Lord. And uh, the chorus of it is, they will know, I can sing. Yeah, they will know we are Christians by our love. Uh, we will work with each other, we will work side by side. It's a beautiful song. And it came out of that, an ecumenical uh, revival where Christians from different branches were working together. And it was inspired by something that was uh, written and spoken of the early church. So I took a screenshot here. Tertullian, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Uh, as Christianity spread through the Roman Empire uh, and Christians rejected pagan practices and they began meeting with each other, they called each other brother and sister. They were a counterculture. You know, uh, Christianity is called to be Counterculture. I would say the culture of the kingdom of God is to be the, the defining culture and everything else is counter or against that. But we're to be not a subculture. Uh, a subculture is like a group within a group. We're not to be a part of, you know, just Western consumerism or whatever you want to call it. And we're just a little branch of that where we, you know, we have Christian logos for our, we have Christian shirts and we have, you know, everything that the world has just. You know, Christian versions. I used to like to go to the Bible bookstore in Evansville. I went, I got a new Bible, by the way. I went there for the first time in a long time. But you could get mint, you know, like you could get Christian candy and Christian mint. And, you know, like you could get, you could go to a gas station. It's like going to a gas station, but everything just, you know, has a little fish on it or a cross or something. I'm not knocking that stuff, but we're not just to be a subculture, like a, a version of that has the main ideas of our culture, just a little bit different. We're to be a counterculture. And the early church was. And people, there were wild rumors. This is what it said. It said wild rumors had begun to circulate in some places about what Christians actually taught and did in their meetings together. To clear the air and defend the good name of Christianity, a church leader in Carthage named Tertullian wrote a brief explanation of Christian practices and a critique of the unjust accusations. In his work, uh, he wrote at one point that these attacks against Christians were made out of jealousy because Christians displayed a character of life that their pagan neighbors did not possess. His statement highlighted a quality that will be the f that uh, is important. He said, "Here's what he wrote: 
It's mainly the deeds of love. This is Tertullian. I don't know if that's how you say that. It's mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand on them. See how they love one another, they say. And that was uh, something that the pagans would say. Behold how they love one another. That was a defining characteristic of the church. He said, see how they love one another, they say. For they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. How they're ready even to die for one another, they say. For they themselves would sooner put others to death. And the church was counterculture, and it stood out like stars in the night because of the way that they love one another. It should be our defining characteristic. And it's a challenge to us. It's a challenge. Let that be what defines us. Now, we don't have to work this up in our own power. The cross... Uh, calls to us, it gives us the example to follow, and it gives us the power to follow that example. The cross just doesn't give us a a model to emulate, humbling ourselves, loving others. Greater love has none than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. One lay down his life for his friends. It empowers us to do that very thing. You know, the book of Hebrews uh, the writer is writing to the early Christians, and he's telling to them, or he's reminding them, he's talking about how uh, they, were, they went through a time of trial, of hard persecution. And a lot of them were thrown in jail, put in prison, had their property seized because they followed Jesus. Some of them were thrown in prison, and then there were Christians who were persecuted and had the same things happen to them because they went to visit their brothers and sisters in prison. I think that's beautiful. So they knew the persecution was coming, and they outed themselves and opened themselves up to persecution because they weren't going to let them sit alone in prison. They visited them. They brought them food. They brought them encouragement. And it's a beautiful picture of how the church is to operate. And he said they were able to do that because they knew they had a better and an abiding possession. So they were able to give up their possessions, have their property seized, because they knew they had a better treasure. So be motivated, Christians. If you're here today and you're not a believer, I hope that you see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, who was without blemish, he was sinless, he was perfect. His betrayal could, like, the worst betrayal happened the best person, the least deserving person. As we wrap up the portion that I'm reading today, the end of chapter 13, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus experiences betrayal. He experiences denial. You know, in Matthew's version, when the disciples ask, is it I? And Jesus says, one will betray you. I think that's an appropriate question to ask. This is my opinion here. 
uh, I think it's good to ask that question of Jesus to examine ourselves. Um, I think it's in Psalm 50, David's psalm after his after he repents from Bathsheba. He says, search me, God, know me, test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's an appropriate thing for a believer to pray. Is there anything offensive in me? Is there anything in me that could betray you, that could deny you? Is there anything in me that displeases you? That's an appropriate thing for a believer to pray. And yet here Peter says, I'll follow you wherever, I'll lay down my life for you. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, be careful when you think you stand, lest you fall. I think we have to be careful when we say that we're above a certain sin. We have to be careful. We have to be humble. We can purpose in our heart not to sin. We can purpose in our heart to reject temptation. We can purpose in our heart to obey the Lord. But I think it's pride when we say we're not going to do something. I'll never do that. I'll never be like that. You know, I had uh, worked with a lot of uh, kids that had grown up in difficult circumstances in my life. And I always cringe a little bit when people say, I'm never going to be like my father. I'm never going to be like, I'm never going to do that to my kids. I'm never going to do that. Tragic in the world that the abused often become abusers. And so we have to be cautious to make declarations like that. Examine ourselves. Go to Christ. Purpose in your heart not to sin. But don't cross into the point of pride and overestimate uh, your ability to withstand or your allegiance to sin. We need to stay humble. Thankfully, Peter has the chance for repentance. I love in the end of John how Jesus restores him. Getting ahead of myself here. But this comes to the end of our passage. What I hope today is that you see and you love Jesus more in a deeper way than maybe you did when you came in here. If you're not a follower of Jesus, his cross accomplished something significant. He saves us. He was a perfect sacrifice, a spotless lamb. And his love drove him to the cross to save us, to forgive us. And I challenge you to receive Jesus. If you're a believer, let's examine our hearts. Let's examine our hearts. Let's forgive those who've done wrong to us. Let's bless those who curse us. Let's do good to those who seek to harm us. And let's purpose in our hearts that By this, all people will know that we are his disciples, the love that we have for one another. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up, have a time of communion. We remember what Jesus has done.